The Bolshevik takeover of Russia was a huge shock to the entire Western world. But Woodrow Wilson was firm on what should happen next. He spelled out his position clearly in the 14 points. Russia should be allowed, quote, the independent determination of her own political development and national policy, unquote. Wilson assured the country, quote, a sincere welcome into the society of free nations under institutions of her own choosing. Point six of the 14 points concluded, quote, the treatment accorded Russia by her sister nations in the months to come will be the acid test of their goodwill, of their comprehension of her needs as distinguished from their own interests, and of their intelligent and unselfish sympathy, unquote. It is therefore entirely reasonable to ask why, as Wilson and his fellow world leaders met in Paris in 1919, thousands of Allied troops were at that very moment fighting Russian forces on Russian soil. An acid-tested goodwill, indeed. This is the year that was 1919. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday, and this is the podcast where we look at history one year at a time. I have wanted to tell the story of Allied intervention in Russia since I first planned this podcast, but what with everything else, I just couldn't jam it into the two full episodes on the Russian Civil War. So it's getting its own short episode this week. And this episode is shorter than usual, but what with overlapping deadlines, a dead laptop charger, and, you know, life. That's just how it worked out. Anyway, this is one of those stories that has simply been forgotten in most of America. Admittedly, it was a small incident in a much bigger drama, but I can assure you that the Russians haven't forgotten about it, not one bit. Here's how it began. I told you last week how upset the Allies were when the Bolsheviks signed a peace treaty with the Central Powers. The Allies were also furious because the Bolsheviks refused to repay loans from France, Britain, and America. Now, some of those loans were in cash, but others took the form of vast quantities of military supplies. Everything from rifles and artillery shells to nurses' uniforms and boots were shipped to Russian ports. To avoid the risk of German submarines, supplies were sent primarily to two ports. First, the northern port of Archangel, which opens onto the Barents Sea and the Arctic Ocean. This is a warm weather port only since the sea freezes up in the winter. Second, the eastern port of Vladivostok. As you'll recall from the last two weeks, Vladivostok is all the way on the other side of the world. It's about 35 miles from the border with northern China and only 75 miles from the border of North Korea. The Allies didn't want the Bolsheviks to seize these supplies and use them for nefarious capitalist undermining purposes. They were also eager to get some people on the ground to keep an eye on the situation and, if all possible, to reopen the Eastern Front against Germany. And there was the matter of supporting the Czechoslovak Legion. So after great debate and argument and exchange of telegrams, the Allies decided to send troops to Archangel and Vladivostok. 
The general placed in charge of the American expedition to Vladivostok received his orders in a really strange way. His name was William S. Graves, and he was stationed at Camp Fremont in Northern California. In August 1918, he received a telegram ordering him to take a train as fast as possible to Kansas City. That was it. Just go to Kansas City. So he did. He stepped off the train and found waiting for him at the station the Secretary of War, Newton Baker. Baker had traveled all the way from Washington just to deliver Graves' orders in person. Baker informed Graves that he, Graves, was to take a unit to Vladivostok. Baker handed Graves a sealed envelope and said, This contains the policy of the United States in Russia, which you are to follow. Then he paused, looked at Graves, and said, Watch your step. You will be walking on eggshells loaded with dynamite. Then Baker got back on the train to the East Coast and was gone. This all seems needlessly dramatic, but the point seems to have been to emphasize what a fraught situation Graves was walking into. Graves' orders included instruction to guard the Allies' military supplies at Vladivostok and to support the Czechoslovak Legion, which was then at the height of its power against the Red Army. However, he was not in any way to interfere with the political sovereignty of Russia or Russian internal affairs or to violate Russian territorial integrity. Now, I am no expert in international law, but it seems to me that landing armed troops on Russian territory automatically violates their sovereignty and interferes with their internal affairs. And that's even before you start supporting the Czechoslovak Legion, which was actively fighting Russian troops. Anyway, General Graves found his orders both baffling and disappointing. He had really wanted to go to France, but he headed for Vladivostok, where he eventually commanded 9,000 American troops. Many of them came directly from bases in the Philippines and had no winter clothing. Finding his men appropriate uniforms was only the start of his problems. Vladivostok was in chaos. The town was swarming with troops, including 1,000 French, 1,600 British, and a variety of Romanians, Serbians, and Poles. Japan had also agreed to send troops, and the Allies had suggested 7,000 men would be a good number. The Japanese instead sent 70,000 in a show of force that shocked everyone. It quickly became clear that each of the Allies had a different goal. Many of them began immediate active support for the White Army and the Czechoslovak Legion. The Japanese seemed to be considering taking over all of eastern Siberia. The Americans, under Graves, refused to help the Whites and concentrated on guarding ports and railway lines. Graves developed deep disgust for everyone else involved and wrote that the Whites were, quote, roaming the country like wild animals, killing and robbing the people. That sounds about right. Meanwhile, a separate group of about 7,000 American soldiers headed for Archangel, but they didn't have their own general graves. Instead, they were placed under the command of the British, and the British had not been told to avoid interference with Russian affairs. Instead, their mission was to help the Whites and the Czechoslovak Legion overthrow the Bolsheviks. Along with some 2,000 French, 1,300 Italians, and a variety of Serbs and Poles, the British and American troops moved out along the rail lines heading south. They hoped to connect with the legionnaires moving in from the east and from a separate white army moving up from the south. 
They fought a series of battles and skirmishes against red troops and gained control of a chunk of northwest Russia. However, as we know, by the autumn of 1918, the momentum had already turned against the whites. As ice filled the rivers and the ground froze hard as iron, the Allies were badly stretched and generally miserable. The cold was relentless. It rarely reached zero degrees Fahrenheit and often dipped to 40 below. As the winter deepened, the sun barely rose above the horizon. The Bolsheviks were more accustomed to the conditions and furthermore were fighting for their homeland. They adopted guerrilla strategies that baffled and frustrated the Allies. On November 11, 1918, as the armistice was signed in France and the guns on the Western Front fell silent, American, British, and Canadian troops deployed at a tiny village about 200 miles south of Archangel. They were attacked by the Bolshevik infantry. The Allies won the battle, although the weather deserves some credit. The Bolsheviks had been firing on the Allied position via gunboats on the Dvina River. When temperatures dropped, the river froze and the gunboats had to retreat. Later, this would become known as the Battle of Armistice Day. At the time, the Allies had no idea the Great War had ended. Many wouldn't find out about the armistice until months after it was signed. When it did finally reach them, word of the peace caused morale to plummet. What were they doing in Russia? What was the point of all this? The men complained to their officers that they were fighting against a country that had neither declared war upon nor attacked any allied country. The commanders back in Washington feared a mutiny. The soldiers in Russia feared they would be forgotten. That they weren't forgotten was thanks to one Hiram Johnson, the former governor of California and a U.S. senator since 1917. Johnson had been told about the plight of the soldiers in Russia by a friend of his who worked with the American Red Cross in Russia. Johnson had been told about the plight of the soldiers by a friend of his who worked with the American Red Cross in Russia. Johnson was a Republican, an unapologetic isolationist, and a vehement opponent of Woodrow Wilson. His position was that by sending Americans into Russia, Wilson was fighting an undeclared war and lying about it. Quote, the first casualty when war comes is truth, Johnson said, coining a phrase. In December 1918, Johnson rose to the floor of the Senate and submitted a resolution that required the Secretary of State to submit to the Senate all data and documents that would explain why American soldiers were in Russia. This was the first time most Americans had even heard of the intervention in Russia, and they were shocked. Johnson's speech ensured that the matter made headlines across the U.S. Response was particularly strong in Michigan, home to one of the units sent to Archangel, the 339th Infantry Regiment, nicknamed the Polar Bears. Families of the Polar Bears started a petition drive. They deluged their senators and congressmen with letters and telegrams. Johnson upped the stakes in January 1919 when he walked onto the floor of the Senate with bags filled with letters from the family members of soldiers stationed in Russia. He gave a withering speech that hit Wilson right where it hurt, attacking the president for intervening in Russian affairs while preaching self-determination. His voice dripping with sarcasm, Johnson asked if the public had perhaps misunderstood what Wilson meant by self-determination. Had he meant, quote, determination by ourselves of the kind of government others should have, and then impressing that kind of government upon an unwilling and rebellious people? 
Johnson ran a risk in questioning American policy against Russia. Americans were terrified of the Reds, who they believed were actively working to overthrow the U.S. government. We're going to talk about all of this in an upcoming episode. Stories about the horrors of the new Bolshevik government and the cruelty of the Red Terror were filling newspapers. Some senators argued that rather than withdrawing troops from Russia, the U.S. should instead send a force of a quarter million men to overthrow the Bolsheviks. Johnson dug in his heels and declared he would continue to fight until the day he could shake the hand of the first polar bear to return to Michigan. Johnson's efforts paid off in February when the Secretary of War sent an official letter to the Senate stating that American soldiers in northern Russia would be withdrawn at the earliest possible moment. That moment, unfortunately, would not be now because Archangel was completely surrounded by ice. The polar bears began returning home in late spring. Of the 7,000 men sent to Archangel, 184 had died, 112 killed in action, and 72 dead from disease. Sixty of those deaths had been from the Spanish flu. The American troops had helped carry the Spanish flu epidemic to northern Russia. On the 4th of July, 1919, the city of Detroit threw a massive party for the returning polar bears. It was brutally hot, 101 degrees at noon, but that didn't stop the fun. There were baseball games, boat rides, swimming, and heaping plates of fried chicken and ice cream. There were bands and dances and endless speeches. Hiram Johnson gave one of those speeches. He declared, quote, And now, if this day has any lesson for us, for all whose hearts beat with Americanism, it means that you and I... All of us must solemnly dedicate ourselves on this happy homecoming day to pledge that boys from America must not be embroiled in European troubles until America's rights are invaded. As I think of the hardships you men suffered, and as I come face to face with you here, I know that you will join me in consecrating ourselves to the aim that this nation shall be American and American alone." Johnson was introduced to the crowd as the greatest possibility for the next president of the United States. Campaigning didn't start years ahead of time like it does now, but the presidency was certainly on Johnson's mind in the summer of 1919 as he geared up for his next fight. He was determined to block U.S. entry into the League of Nations. Johnson became one of the most irreconcilables who refused to vote for the treaty under any circumstances. When Wilson realized the treaty was failing in the Senate and went on his nationwide tour to gin up public support, Johnson decided to go on his own tour. He followed the president down the West Coast to Los Angeles, attracting crowds just as large and passionate as the president's. American intervention in Russia was always at the top of Johnson's list of arguments against the League. Wilson had sent thousands of Americans to Russia without consulting Congress. Where would he send them under the League of Nations? The Russian adventure would be just the start if Wilson got his way and the League of Nations could force American involvement around the globe. Johnson was, of course, pleased when the League of Nations Treaty was defeated in the Senate, but he was disappointed the following year when Warren G. Harding won the Republican nomination for president. Nevertheless, Johnson remained in the Senate until his death in 1945. It is fair to say that Johnson's protest against American involvement in Russia contributed to rising isolationism after the war and the defeat of the League of Nations. 
Allied troops evacuated Archangel completely by the end of September 1919. Support for intervention had grown unpopular in Britain and France as well as the United States, and countries were eager to get their soldiers home. It took longer to completely withdraw troops from Vladivostok. The last U.S. soldiers departed in April 1920, followed by the British that June. The enormous Japanese force remained until October 1922. Let's talk about the Japanese intervention for just a minute. The goals of Japan were never clearly articulated and seem not to have been clear even within the army and the civilian government. Clearly, the Japanese were hostile to communism and wanted to stop it from taking root so close to home. They were also eager to take a more prominent role in international affairs. Some Japanese leaders also envisioned creating a buffer state in eastern Siberia or outright acquiring territory for the Japanese empire. However, the intervention was deeply unpopular at home, and the public argued that the high cost of the operation wasn't worth its meager results. Opposition grew as the Bolsheviks gained strength and pushed the Japanese back into Vladivostok and eventually home. This period was one of relatively democratic politics in Japan with a two-party system and civilian control of the military. The failure of the Siberian intervention contributed to disillusionment with the civilian government. Democratic rule collapsed in Japan for many reasons, but the intervention in Siberia was definitely one of them. The military stepped in, and the result is the imperial Japan familiar to students of World War II, a country in which the military dominated the civilian life of the nation. I am summarizing an incredibly complex situation here, but the Siberian intervention was a watershed moment in Japan. Another lasting consequence of the Allied intervention was deep suspicion and resentment on the part of the Russians. Most Americans forgot that American troops had been sent to Vladivostok and Archangel. In his third State of the Union address on January 25, 1984, President Ronald Reagan said the following. Tonight, I want to speak to the people of the Soviet Union to tell them it's true that our governments have had serious differences, but our sons and daughters have never fought each other in war. And if we Americans have our way... They never will. Except, of course, that's not true. Americans did fight the people of the Soviet Union, on Russian soil, no less. Americans may have forgotten, but the Russians certainly hadn't. Stalin frequently brought up Wilson's intervention in Russia during World War II conferences. And in 1959, Nikita Khrushchev made the first visit of a Soviet premier to the United States. He spoke about peaceful coexistence, but nevertheless, he reminded the audience about, quote, the time you sent the troops to quell the revolution. Allied intervention created a legacy of distrust and resentment between Russia and the West that helped poison U.S.-Soviet relations. Is it possible that this distrust would have arisen anyway? Absolutely. But the fact is, Americans marched into Russia with guns and killed Russian people. You don't forget that sort of thing. Thanks so much for listening to The Year That Was. Next week, we're going to take a look at another largely forgotten moment of history, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918-1919. I hope you'll join me. 
I also want to invite you to check out the website at www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com. You'll find lots of maps and photos, including some fantastic photos of the polar bear expedition and American troops in Archangel. And I hope you check out the Facebook page and join the Facebook group where you can ask questions and share opinions about the show. I want to thank everyone who has left a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It's so awesome when you do that. And be certain you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is The Year That Was.